are so amazing and your word is incredible. And we want every bit of it. And so we open our hearts to receive your word in our lives. And we thank you that grace is going to come with it so that we just will not be just hearers of the word, but doers also. And we thank you for this opportunity, Father, to receive from you. And we thank you for this wonderful gift to the body. And we bless him. And Father, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. It's good to be here. My wife wasn't able to make it. Uh, She is babysitting one of our granddaughters. And so she gives greetings. She really misses everybody. She really wanted to come, but, but that didn't work out. And to tell you how much I enjoy being here is that this is our 30, 34th wedding anniversary. And, I'm, uh, and my wife's at home, and I'm here. So My wife wasn't clapping. But anyways... <laughs> Also, um, the sermon notes, I think that after the service, if you want to, you can pick up all the sermon notes so, we, so you don't have to try to write everything down. And also, I, I, when I got here, I, I noticed the red car and I, I thought, is that a getaway car in case the message doesn't go real well? So, <laughs> anyways, since this is a missions conference, I thought, thought we would study a parable that I think is applicable. And it's in Luke 16. It's the parable of the unjust steward. And I'd just like to read it first of all. Luke 16 verses 1 to 11. He also says, said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I resolved what to do, that when I am put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Of all the parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the unjust steward seems on the surface to be one of the most perplexing from a number of different perspectives. This parable has puzzled many people through the ages. How is it that an unjust steward, about to be relieved of his position, gains praise from his employer when he ends his career by stealing even more from him? The real puzzle of the parable is this. 
What does Jesus want to teach us from a story about an unjust steward who seemingly benefited from his shrewd but unrighteous conduct? If Jesus wanted to teach us to act wisely and deal shrewdly, wouldn't it have been more appropriate if he had used the parable of a righteous man being rewarded for his wise and prudent conduct? However, our Lord never wasted a word, wastes a word and never arbitrarily uses an example. Each parable and every detail is carefully chosen and sculpted to provide us with important insights and truths. I believe this parable holds a number of important truths that will enable us to be more effective in our service to God. The parable begins with a steward accused of being unfaithful and carrying out his duties, having wasted his master's goods. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. The master's response was to seek an explanation and an accounting from the steward of how he had conducted the master's business. What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. It is obvious from the steward's response that these charges were true, because instead of providing an explanation or a defense, he prepares for his departure from his position. What shall I do for my master's taking the stewardship away from me? The true colors of the steward were even revealed further by, the, by his solution to his very imminent career change. The steward began by contacting each one of his master's debtors and reducing their debts at the master's expense in the hope that he would win their favor. Then once he lost the position as steward, they would receive him into their own homes. In other words, he was looking for free room and board. Up to this point, the story one may wonder what the purpose of this parable is or what principle is Jesus trying to teach us. Initially, one may conclude it shows how sinful man is corrupt and cannot cannot be trusted. However, in an interesting twist as the parable continues, rather than the steward being punished for his dishonesty once his actions were exposed, his master instead commended the unrighteous steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Even more startling is that Jesus himself commented on the actions of the unjust steward in such a way as to indicate we, as believers and followers of Christ, should learn something from his actions. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So he's saying, learn from this guy. Follow his example. These were Jesus' words before he sent out his disciples. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to be as harmless as doves, but we need to be as wise as serpents. About 15, or 15 to 20 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, one day as I was reading this parable, I felt that God wanted me to understand what it meant because I needed to apply it to my life. As some of you know, I've been in business, so I was running a business. So I needed to under- I felt I needed to understand this parable. So I went and I asked a number of Christians, men of God that I really trusted, I said, what does this parable really mean? Like, he said, well, and they had some kind of vague ideas, but, but nobody really could tell me. Said, well, I'm not really quite sure exactly why he used that illustration. 
So anyways, I began praying, saying, God, I, I feel you want me to understand this parable, but, but, but what does it mean? So it went on, maybe a, a number of weeks went by, and then it was already October in Canada, and you know, in October, the leaves all fall. I don't know if you have that here, but they fall, but we have lots of leaves that fall. Anyways, um, and we had a big backyard, and so I borrowed a gas-powered leaf blower. You know those things you strap on the back? Looks like you're going to war, you have the headsets and you're, and you're blowing. And so anyways, as I am blowing these leaves and I'm praying in tongues, and I'm just blowing these leaves and blowing them, and all of a sudden a question comes to my mind. And the question was this, if your next door neighbor asked to borrow the leaf floor, should you let him? And you know, he had been a, a nasty neighbor. But me being a good Christian, I responded my thoughts. Sure, as long as he puts the gas in. And then a next thought came. No, you should lend it to him and give him and put the gas in yourself. And at that moment, at that moment, I understood what the parable meant. The unjust steward used the unrighteous mammon, the temporal riches of this life, to influence people for his own selfish gain. But we are to use the unrighteous mammon to influence people for the kingdom of God. I go, that's it. Jesus was not praising the unjust steward for his unrighteous actions or his selfish motivation. He was praising his foresight and preparing for his imminent departure, his wisdom and understanding human nature, and his brilliant plan on how to use his master's resources to influence very specific people in very specific ways. That's what it was. He realized his, his stewardship was going to end quickly. He had the wisdom to understand human nature, and he had a brilliant plan of how to use his master's resources to help him. In the parable of the unjust steward, there's a pattern for effective evangelism. And that's why I'm sharing it this morning, because this is all about evangelism, right? We are going to study this parable to learn some specific ways we can influence people for the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes Jesus used parables to provide comparisons and sometimes to provide contrasts for us to understand how we are to live according to God's principles. In the parable of the unjust steward, Jesus employs both comparisons and contrasts. So let's start off in verse 1 again. He also said to his disciples, There is a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. The parable compares God with the rich man. The parable begins with, there was a certain rich man. Speaking of God, who's infinitely rich, and everything always begins with him and emanates from him. Next, the parable introduces the rich man's steward. A steward is one who is employed in his master's service to carry out the master's affairs for the benefit of his master. Believers could be compared to the steward. Because once we have received Christ, we are called into a service to see the fulfillment of God's will in our lives and in the lives of those around us. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We received Christ, we are now stewards of the King. In Luke 12:42, Jesus used another parable to illustrate how we as believers are his stewards and how we will be rewarded if we are found to be faithful 
And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? In 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul speaks about the stewardship he had been trusted with, saying, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. What an amazing stewardship to be stewards of the mysteries of God. If we are willing to spend time in his word and in prayer, God will also reveal his mysteries to us so we too can be stewards of the mysteries of God. But it requires for us to spend time in his word and prayer so we can understand those mysteries and then be stewards of those mysteries. Paul continued on in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 that not only is it an amazing blessing to be entrusted by God to be a steward, but we also have the responsibility to be faithful stewards. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. What is the heart of this great mystery entrusted to us? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and was received up in glory. That's the mystery. That's the heart of the mystery that we've been entrusted with. And we say, well, I understand that. No, we don't. We get glimpses of it. We're growing in it. But it is so marvelous that if we have a full grasp of it, even as CJ was, Pastor CJ, I'm I'm too informal, Pastor CJ, Pastor CJ was saying, is, is to rejoice because we grasp the mystery. The mystery, wow. You know, sometimes when I get discouraged or I get weary, you know, I stop and I have to spend time worshiping God and meditating on what Jesus did. That God came down as a man and lived the perfect life and he died for me. That God came down and and start to even grasp a glimpse of this. I got to figure where I am now. Okay, there I am. Good. So how do we become faithful stewards of this great mystery? To be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God is to, first of all, have a clear revelation of his mysteries, and then to faithfully convey them to others, not only by our words, but by the example of our lives as we live out Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself to, for me. The great mystery is, is, is stewarded not by our words, but by our lives. As Brother CJ, Pastor CJ, I'll get it right one day. As, as he was saying, extravagant worship isn't what we just do here. It's how we live. It's how we live. Living a godly submitted life to God is how we become good stewards of the grace of God. When we live godly lives, we are stewarding the grace of God. We are stewarding the mysteries of God that God has given us. The story in the parable begins to develop when an accusation was brought to him, the rich man, that this man, his steward, was wasting his goods. The Greek word translated as wasted actually means to dissipate, squander, Waste, disperse, strew. 
It infers not only a wasting his master's resources, but an attitude of carelessness and neglect, tossing things aside, not being mindful of where they fall, and a total disregard for their value, and an indifference to the loss and damage that would result. The steward is not using the master's goods as the master wanted or intended. He used them wastefully to meet his selfish whims or out of laziness neglected them entirely. This aspect of this parable serves as a warning, as a contrast, that we need to recognize that God has given us only one life to live. We need to be careful not to squander the opportunities and resources that he's given us. What things has God given us to steward? Our time, health, finances, wisdom, talents, spiritual gifts, and relationships, just to mention a few. These were given so that we could steward them to influence people for the kingdom of God. They weren't given to us for us to squander them on our selfishness. If we're living self-centered lives, you are squandering the resources that God has entrusted you to steward with. Many times we fail to faithfully steward the things God has given us, not by committing some hideous visible sin, but simply by failing to seek God and putting off what he intended for us to do today for another time. Right? That's squandering the resources of God. He wants to do something now, and we say, I'll do it another time. You know, the great principle, the faithful stewarding the things that God has given us, can be summed up in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, when people tell me they don't have time to pray, the problem is, not that they don't have enough time to pray, the problem is their, their priorities are backwards. If, you know, they, if they would pray first, they will always find time to eat. But if they eat first, they may not have time to pray. Isn't that amazing? You ever met somebody who's, well, for the last five days, I just haven't had time to pr- I eat. You know, I just haven't had time to eat. You mean for five days, you never had time to eat? You'll never find someone like that. But somebody says, well, I haven't had time to pray in the last five days. That happens. They haven't stewarded the time that God has given them. Now, I know that you're all encouraged about this. Anyways, Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11, and also it's repeated in Proverbs 24, 33 and 34. They repeat the same warning in regards to time. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. If we do not use our time wisely, it can lead to becoming, to becoming impoverished and natural, but even more significantly, to becoming spiritually impoverished. Proverbs 6.11 compares wasting time to meeting up with a prowler or an armed man who robs us of our valuables. Another good analogy is falling victim to a pickpocket because you don't immediately realize you've been robbed of something valuable. The loss of time is so subtle that often we fail to recognize it's even occurred. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. You know, I've never been robbed by a pickpocket, but I can imagine. You know, you, you, you bump into somebody and about five minutes later you go, my, 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 my wallet, right? You don't even realize it's gone. And that's how it is. We get pickpocketed. And so we go, 
Where did the good day go? You ever had that? Where did that day go? I mean, all the things you wanted, what, what happened? You didn't steward the time that God gave you. trying to turn the page here. So. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. <laughs> you know, one time I was preaching and somebody says, preach it, brother. I said, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> one of the greatest, <clears throat> one of the greatest resources that God gives to us is time. And often we fail to steward, be good stewards of how we spend it. One of the, for one to waste most things requires some degree of effort. Even wasting money requires a certain degree of effort to actually spend it. The amazing thing about wasting time is that it doesn't re- require us to do anything. Like if you know, I said, well, here's 50 bucks wasted. Well, I got to go downtown. I got to go to a store. I got to buy something. I got to come back. But to waste time, you don't have to do anything. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the way we waste time sometimes is we spend it on things that the world thinks are valuable but are wasted because it's not for God's kingdom. Somebody says, oh, look, you're very successful. You're doing this and you're doing that, but we're doing it for ourselves. To the world, they say, you're using your time wisely, but we're stewards of God's time and we're wasting it because we're not using it for his kingdom. Verse 2, we're moving along. So he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. We can learn two things from verse 2 that applies to us and will help us to have the correct perspective in evaluating our lives. First, we need to fully realize that our lives on this earth will come to an end along with any ministries we've received as well as any opportunities that God has given us. In fact, our lives on this earth will pass by much more quickly than we expect. For you can no longer be steward. It happened so quickly. I'm going to be 60 this year. And I go, wow, what happened? I mean, I still think I'm young till I look in the mirror. Or my wife reminds me. No. But anyways, but the point is, wow, that goes by quickly. In other words, it's limited. We need to steward the time that God has given us. Our lives will not, on this earth will not continue forever. The things God has entrusted us with and the things he's prepared for us to do have a time limit. Everything has a time limit. Everything we have to do on this earth, earthly life, has a deadline. From filling out our taxes to doing a school project to fulfilling the ministry God has given us. Almost everything we need to do has a deadline. Even the word deadline conveys the idea of finality. A deadline does not ensure we ne- what we need to do will be actually completed. But what it means is there come a time where we either will have completed it or we have, will have failed the task. In other words, when I had my grade 10 history project, if there was no deadline, I could say even today, well, I'm still working on it. <laughs> but a deadline means, well, you either complete it or you failed to complete it. No matter how much potential we have, it will never be realized if we don't actually do something. Right? You've got to actually do something. The people who have impacted the world the most are not necessarily the ones that have been most gifted or intelligent, 
but the ones that actually did something. You know, they did a study one time on, on scientists, and they, they studied a whole bunch of brilliant scientists, and, and, and the ones that, then they, they studied what the difference is between the ones that came up with tr- tremendous discoveries and ones that just never really came up with really tremendous discoveries. What they found out was the percentage of theories and ideas that they came up with that were actually valid and the ones that were not right, that ratio is about the same. But the difference was the ones that came up with the tremendous theories, they were the ones that just came up more and more and more. They continued to seek out and understand things until they finally found something that was really valuable. Absolutely, perseverance. The second thing we can learn from verse 2 is that every believer must give an account of your stewardship. We will all have to answer to God on how we lived our lives and how we steward, stewarded the things God entrusted to us. That's one thing, that's a theme in my life, my personal life. God, I know my life is going to come to an end. And it's going to come sooner than later because time flies. And so that's a theme. In 2 Corinthians 5.10... 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Some Christians ask, will we have to answer for how we have lived our lives and what we did with the gifts, talents, and opportunities we have been given? This verse says it all. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is only for believers, and it is not a place of condemnation, but of rewards for those who have been faithful. However, it can also be a place of tears, loss, and disappointment for those who have not been faithful. We must all give an account for our stewardship in our lives. Verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. The steward realized that his stewardship was soon coming to an end, and he asked himself a very important question. What shall I do? The steward was wise enough to recognize two things. First, soon he would stand before his master to give an account of his stewardship. Second, he still had time to prepare for that day if he took the appropriate actions. Are we wise enough to realize that our stewardship is going to end soon, but secondly, that we still have an opportunity I believe the first thing Jesus wanted to teach his disciples and wants to teach us from the example of the unjust steward is that we need to recognize that our lives will soon come to an end. We need to be deliberate in how we spend our time and how we use the things God has entrusted to us. The steward had initially acted foolishly by failing to be mindful that his stewardship would one day come to an end. But when he finally realized it, he was wise enough to recognize he had failed to prepare, and he was shrewd enough to take immediate action to rectify the situation. Many believers aren't wise enough to actually act upon the reality our lives are going to end. You know, there's an expression, you know, everybody knows they're going to die, but most people don't believe it. Right? They keep living their lives as if they're not going to die. In verse 3 of this parable, Jesus conveys two important truths. First, as Christians, we do not waste our lives, don't waste our lives on dissipative living. 
Second, if you, ha- you realize that you've been wasteful and negligent, there is still an opportunity to redeem the remaining time and to live a fruitful life for the glory of God. It doesn't matter. I- I've been a believer now 39 years. And for the first 17 years, I went to church, but I was stuck in legalism. You know what I mean? I was kind of like, I was a neutral and maybe I was even rolling back a bit, but I just wasn't going forward. I went to church. I never got into sin or, you know, into bad stuff, but, but I never really was moving on. It wasn't like, well, hours are going to bars or whatever. No, I was sitting in church. I went to church like three, four times a week, but I wasn't moving forward. And I was getting frustrated. And I remember after 17 years, that was 22 years ago, I got filled with the Spirit. And I made an important decision. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to pursue Him first. See, people, when they get filled with the Holy Spirit or have a visitation from God, they think they've arrived. That's not your point of arrival. That's your point of invitation. That's why so many times you see people filled with the Spirit or being impacted by God in a, in a service, and they think, I've got it. No, no, you've got an invitation now. What will determine your direction will be how you respond to the invitation from that day on. That's what it is. I remember... I remember my prayer life for the first 17 years. I'd go to prayer meetings, but, but my personal prayer life was about five minutes a day. That included reading the Bible. And that was on a good day. And I was frustrated. I didn't want to be like that. But, you know, I remember when I had that visitation, I said, God, I'm going to put you first. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where you're taking me. I'm going to put you first. And I began to start every morning in prayer. Every morning reading the word. You know, and I said, I wonder what he can do. It's been 22 years and he's done something. I got to figure where I am now. Okay, there I am. Okay. I figure, okay, there's too many first. Okay, verse 3, there I am there. Okay. I'm still working on this. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do this. See, normally I have an iPad so I can read my notes when I can follow myself. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty bad, eh? <laughs> this is pretty bad. Oh, wait a second. Maybe this page is better. <laughs> oh, that's a better page. Yeah. <clears throat> and I pride myself in being organized. So, um... <laughs> Okay, so I said, so second, if you realize that you've been, wa- been wasteful and negligent, there's still an opportunity to redeem the remaining time and live a fruitful life for the glory of God. So I wasted first 17 years, but God redeemed it because I began to follow him. So don't feel like, oh, how many years have I wasted? And you know what I found out later? As I began to grow, even those 17 years, God had imparted things to me that started coming forth as I began to seek him. If we realize that we've been wasteful with our times and our lives, the most important thing for us to do is learn from our mistakes and not to continue the same cycle of failure. We can change our focus from our past failures and look to Christ who will lead us to live fruitful lives. Regret will cause us to live in the shadow of our failures and lead to the paralyzing effect of condemnation. Neglect will cause us to ignore our failures, resulting in us repeating them. So if you feel condemned, you're not going to move. Oh, I just, I'm such a mess. I've just wasted so much. Well, that will paralyze you. 
If you, if you neglect it, you will continue to repeat the cycle. But he wants to take her eyes off her failures and look to him. God has a wonderful promise for those who are willing to repent and turn to him. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. The key to restoration is to understand that our part and God's part. If you don't understand those two differences, you're not going to make it. You're going to get bogged down. We are the ones who turn to God in repentance, obedience, and submission. He is the one who brings the restoration, healing, and fruitless in our lives. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. In other words, don't think, how do I fix my mess up? How do I move forward? No, no. Our thing is we look to God, we repent, and we just submit and obey him. He's the one that does all the rest. The opportunities of the past are gone. But God will provide us new opportunities so we can live fruitful, victorious lives. Isn't that wonderful? Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 18. Ephesians 5, 15 to 18. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. A maxim for Christian stewardship could be, be very careful how you live, make the most of every opportunity, understand what the will of the Lord is, be filled with the Spirit. So that you can use that for a Christian maxim of stewardship. Verse 3 again. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do for my master is taking the stewardship away from me, and I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg? The steward evaluated his situation and came to two conclusions. I cannot dig. I do not have the strength or the ability to dig or do manual labor. Second, I'm ashamed to beg. I don't want to be put to shame by the poverty that I will experience when my stewardship ends. How do these two facts apply to believers? I cannot dig. I don't have the strength within myself to overcome my failures, improve my life, or restore the things I've lost. I can't do it. Second, I'm ashamed to beg. I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, empty-handed and ashamed of how I lived my life. Armed with these two, two facts, the steward developed his plan of action. And I'd like to read verses 4 to 7. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. I have resolved what to do. The unjust steward realized three things that helped him arrive at a course of action. First, I'm impoverished and there's nothing I can do with my meager resources to help myself. Second, my master is very rich. Third, I am still his steward for a short time, and his resources are still at my disposal, so I'll use his riches to help myself out of my predicament. A summary of the steward's solution was simple but shrewd. I am poor, my master's rich, therefore I'll use his money. <laughs> right? See how the parable really is fitting together? 
Okay, let's get going again. Okay. The steward was going to use his master's wealth to win people over so when his stewardship ended, they would receive him into their own homes. They may receive, that they may receive me into their houses. The Greek word translated receive means to accept the presence of someone with friendliness. Welcome, to extend hospitality. The steward's plan was to influence people so they would receive him into their homes and even embrace him as part of their own family. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. The steward's realized the only people he could influence would be those who were indebted to his master, right? He couldn't influence anybody else. Only the people who were indebted to his master could he influence. Verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Verse 9 gives us the spiritual application of verse 4 and how the steward's strategy and example can be applied to our lives. Make friends for yourself. This implies that the people we are to make friends with are not yet our friends. They are not right in right relationship with God. It's interesting that in verse 4, it says that, it says that they'll receive you into their houses. The word houses there is in the Greek is oikos, and it means a house, a home, where people are more or less related. In other words, a place where people dwell together that are relatives. But in verse 9, the Greek word home is shekinah. And it means a tabernacle, and it's used in the New Testament sometimes, referring to heaven or being in the presence of God. And we say shekinah glory. So that when we fail, they'll receive us into the Shekinah. The ones whom the steward influenced were indebted to his master. This speaks of those who have not yet received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are still under the weight of their sins and transgressions by unrighteous mammon. The method by which we are to influence those who do not know Christ is by using the unrighteous mammon of this life. Mammon is an Aramaic word meaning wealth and riches with a strong negative connotation. And it can simply be translated as worldly wealth and riches. By describing the riches of this world as unrighteous mammon does not mean that the riches themselves are evil, but only that they have no eternal value. Describing the riches of this life as unrighteous mammon speaks about the inherent danger that riches can produce in a heart that is covetous, as Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. God wants us to use the unrighteous mammon that he has given to us to influence people for the gospel. By being generous to others with the things God has given to us, others can understand the generosity of Christ and of the gospel, and it will help them to understand God's gracious and generous invitation to receive forgiveness and redemption. When God is speaking about us being generous to others, it is not just about money, but our time and anything else that God has given us. That when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. The ultimate application is that when our lives on this earth come to an end, when you fail, all those who have received Christ and become part of the family of God will, with great joy and expectation, await a revival in heaven 
and greet us and thank us for being faithful witnesses to him. Isn't that wonderful? A friend of mine, he's a, a pastor. Um, he's now uh, in his late 60s. But, but he lived in a, a, one of our provinces called Newfoundland. It's called The Rock. It's out in the Atlantic Ocean there. And when he was a young man, he was a heavy drinker and kind of obnoxious. And there's one older Christian man that kept trying to witness to him. And he kept reaching out to him. And, 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 and Troy would always be rebuff, rebuffing him, you know. But he kept reaching out to him. Finally, Troy left, moved to, to, to another part of Canada. And then a short time later, he got saved. And then not only that, but he went to Bible school and he went into ministry. Well, many years goes by, maybe 40, and one day Troy is sitting at home and the thought comes to him to phone that man up and tell him that he actually received Christ and to let him know that the things that he had planted in his heart before were used by God to bring him to salvation. Anyway, so he finds this guy's phone number and he phones him up and he he introduces himself again and reminds him, and of course the guy remembered him, and he says, I just wanted the phone you to tell you that what you did for me wasn't a waste. But through your witness, I've come to Christ. And not only that, but I've become a pastor. And the phone line went silent. Just totally silent. And then a few moments later, he heard weeping on the phone. And the man said, I was just sitting here, and I was talking to God, and I'd just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was sitting here thinking, God, has my life meant anything to anyone? All the people I've witnessed to, all the people I've tried to reach out to, and I've never seen anything. Has my life meant anything to anyone for you, Lord? And the phone rings. And Troy said, because of you, I have become part of the kingdom. What a great joyful event there will be when we enter heaven to embrace each other and rejoice together before the throne of God as one unified family in Christ, his body. Every time I pray with someone to receive Christ, whether in church or in a hospital room with a sick or dying person, I think about the day we will rejoice together in heaven before the throne of God. That's what I do every time I lead somebody to Christ. Every time I think one day we will be together and they're going to be waiting for me. If they, if they get there before me, right? They're going to be waiting for me. And they're going to say, thank you. Thank you. When Jesus says that, that I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, he is really reiterating the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is the Great Commission. Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. Go and lead them to Christ. Verses 5 and 5 to 7. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and write down eighty. Verses 5 to 7 provide us with insights on how to use the unrighteous mammon to influence people for the sake of the gospel. Verse 5. 
So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to him, How much do you owe my master? He called every one of his master's debtors to him. We need to reach out to everyone around us for all our debtors and need need of forgiveness and salvation. So he called every one of his master's debtors. Now you notice something too that that when the de- when the when the steward spoke to his debtors, he said, "How much do you owe my master?" He didn't say, "How much do you owe your master?" See, they weren't part of the household of the master yet. He says, "How much do you owe my master?" We go and say, "How much do you know, owe my lord?" So let them know that they're not yet part of the kingdom. We should not become indifferent to the plight of the lost. As we encounter those who still do not know Christ, we can reach out to them in many different ways. Maybe as simple as a word of encouragement, a smile, a prayer, or an act of kindness done in the name of the Lord. You know, if you do something nice to someone, say, the Lord bless you. Let them know you've done it in the name of the Lord. We need to bring to the attention of each person the immensity of their debt before God. And that is sinners, they are incapable of paying. The steward posed the question to each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? See, he wanted them to realize what debt they had. They needed to know the the immensity, the enormity of their debt. In recent times, it has become unpopular, even among Christians, to point out that we are all sinners and that eternal, the eternal consequences, if not rectified, is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. We need to point out to people that they have a debt that they cannot pay. A, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, a number of years ago, he had an open vision of hell. And it was the most biblical vision of hell I've ever heard. And the horrific... And I won't go into it now. Maybe another time I'll, I'll, I'll speak about hell. But, but anyways, um, but when we contemplate what it means to be separated from God and from everyone else for all eternity. For all eternity. See, the soul is eternal, but without a spirit, they're dead. They're conscious, but they're dead. Living a conscious death for all eternity. I remember uh, one time there was a man who retired from where I was working. Um, he was about 67 years old, but a very nice guy, always dressed up in a suit, you know, very polite. And whenever he talked about God, he just sort of totally dismissed it, in a very nice way, but dismissed it. Anyways, he retired. About 15 years later, I get a phone call one Monday morning, and um, I was preparing. We had a Monday night Bible study, and it was a guy's daughter. I never met the guy's daughter. He's now in his mid-80s. So she phones and says, um, and says, you know, could you visit my father? He's dying of cancer. He's got a couple of weeks to live. Now, I don't know who this lady is, but somehow she wanted, and I said, well, sure. Well, I had a Bible study present. We we're supposed to have 80 people coming that night. But I thought, you know, it's more important to share the gospel than to have, to have a sermon ready for 80 people. So I phoned my brother up right away, and we went to the hospital. I hadn't seen him in 15 years. He, when I saw him, he was 67, but very vibrant. Now he's 80, mid-80s. And, you know, I walk into the room with my brother. You know, the rooms are, it's a two, two, two better. And he's there and his hair's all disheveled and he's got a, an IV drip. And so we walk in and we, we, we you know, we don't want to disturb him. You know, he's kind of not, doesn't look conscious and his hair's a mess. Sort of like mine. But anyways, um, his, but 
that I, I thought we were going to walk out. And also the nurse walks in and says, um, are you here to see John? Yeah, but we don't have the syrup. No, no, go right ahead. So she shakes him. John, you got some visitors. Well, I didn't know how, he, how his mind would be. He looked at us. His eyes flipped up, brightened up. and says, Harvey, Howard, what a delight to see you. Wow. So we, we shared a few things. And then Harvey said, well, the reason we're here is we want to share something very important with you. So Harvey shared the gospel. And then we asked this question. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he goes, I, I'm not sure. He says, but would you want to? Yes, yes. So we prayed together. And after he finished praying, as soon as he finished praying, he opened his eyes and opened his mouth and said, Hallelujah! I thought he became Pentecostal. So, but there was such a joy, such a liberty. There's a man who is within a week or two of dying, and now is filled with joy. And I know John's waiting for me in heaven. And he's going to say, Thank you, Howard. We have a message of redemption, but the need for redemption must be first presented before they can be, they can appreciate how wonderful the gospel truly is. We gotta say, how much do you owe? We gotta make them understand that they are sinners. There is a debt. Otherwise, they won't realize. It's not like the redemption is somebody paid for your parking ticket. They have to understand the cost, but to understand the cost, they have to understand they're dead. Verse 6. And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. The steward had previously been accused of wasting his master's resources. This time he was doing the same thing, but now he was doing it intentionally with very specific goals as compared to the previous time when he did it out of neglect. He was still wasting his master's goods, but he was doing it now intentionally. There is a very good reason that the steward could so easily reduce the debt and waste his master's goods without feeling any sense of loss. He realized the debt was not owed to himself and the money didn't belong to him, but this was his master's. It was his master and not himself who was suffering a loss. Right? That's why he could forget. No problem. How much do you owe? Okay, well, just let's reduce it. No problem. <laughs> you want a bit more? Sure. Go ahead. Forgiveness is one way that we can reduce the debts of those who have wronged us and caused us harm emotionally, financially, and physically. How, however, for us to be able to forgive others for the losses we have suffered requires for us to realize that everything we have, including our very lives, belong to God. So the loss is not ours. The loss and injury has been to God. The steward could easily forgive the debt and waste the master's goods because they were his master's and not his own. It is easy to be generous with someone else's goods. Like the car. Go ahead, take it. It's not mine. Go ahead, you want it? Sure. Well, that's so generous. It'll be fine. I don't tell them. I don't, I don't own the car. <laughs> so everybody thinks, this steward's really generous. But it didn't cost him anything. But it cost his master everything. Once we realize that all our possessions really belong to God, it will bring a greater freedom for us to be generous and forgive those who have wronged us. Right? If once you realize that everything you have and everything you are is God's, then you will find freedom to forgive people. Because it's not yours. 
Jesus Christ at Calvary paid the full price for all the sins, transgressions, and damages that each person has caused. We can forgive those who have wronged us because Jesus took the debt, absorbed the loss, and received the punishment upon himself. We can easily get upset and offended when our goods are damaged or stolen. This is because we mistakenly believe that they belong to us and not to God. The proof that nothing in this life belongs to us can be clearly seen in that when we leave this earthly life, everything is left behind. You know, we sometimes say, God, why would you allow someone to damage my car? Why would you allow someone to steal from me? Why would you allow someone to cheat me? And God says, no, no, that's my stuff. That's not your stuff. And I'll do with my stuff what I want to do. Right? Because he wants us to be an example of forgiveness. You know, it's sort of like the, the you know, you ever have really nice furniture and you have really not nice kids? <laughs> you know what I mean by that? So you buy a new table, a new wood table, beautiful finish, and a kid goes and <laughs> with a pencil right across it. Go, ah! I wanted to take that table to heaven! You know what I mean? Like, it's all staying behind. <laughs> it's all staying behind. If we hold on to our rights, we will lose opportunities to effectively share Christ. If we hold on to our rights, we will lose that opportunity to share Christ. If we take our, take up offenses and put our rights before Christ's purposes, we will fail to touch many hearts for Christ and we will have failed being good stewards of God's resources. I'm going to write that point down. I like that. Well, you don't like my notes, but I like them. (laughs) The things that the world counts as valuable, the unrighteous mammon, God uses by showing that one soul is worth more than all the riches of this world. God profanes the temporal to save the eternal. God profanes the temporal to save the eternal. So when he allows us to suffer loss and we forgive, we're saying you're worth more than what you've done against me. He makes all things work together for good. Even the unrighteous mammon, for those who love him, are called according to his purpose. So he'll take the unrighteous, God takes the unrighteous mammon and he uses it to bring redemption to people when we love God more than we love money. And verse 6, and he said, take a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. The debt of the first creditor is described as a hundred measures of oil. The oil may represent the spiritual debt incurred because of sin and the resulting losses. Many times oil speaks about the Holy Spirit. So when the loss is, speaking about a hundred measures of oil, it's the things that are affected that they're done spiritually against this. And so there's that aspect of forgiveness. Why did the steward only reduce the debt from 100 measures to 50 measures instead of the debt to zero? First of all, I think that the 100 measures shows that our full extent of our sin. But why did he reduce it from 100 to 50? Wouldn't it have been more generous to say, I'm going to take it from 100 and reduce it to zero? The steward, because he was not the master, was limited on how much he could reduce the debt. 
When, he, when we extend forgiveness to someone who's wronged us, we have eased the burden on them, but we cannot eliminate the burden of their sins because that right belongs to God. Salvation and complete forgiveness only comes when sinners themselves come to Christ and put their faith in Him and ask Him directly for forgiveness. So we can't remove the debt totally from people, but we can reduce the debt. Because we're not the masters, we're the stewards only. When we forgive people who have wronged us, even if, we do, even if they do not ask us for it, we are not only easing their burden, we are showing Christ's unconditional love for them and his desire to forgive and save them. Stephen is an example of one who reduced the debt of those who had wronged him. While he was being stoned to death, his dying words, he cried out to God for his murders, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. While Stephen's words of forgiveness could not bring salvation to them, he asked that the guilt of their actions not be counted against them. He reduced their indebtedness to God, and his example paved the way for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Apostle Paul. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. We cannot force people to accept our forgiveness. We can only accept, extend our forgiveness. They still need to take your bill... Acknowledge the wrong they've done, sit down, humble themselves, and write, accept their forgiveness. In other words, we sometimes will say, I forgive you, but the person says, I don't want your forgiveness. But the first thing they have to do is, they have to take their bill. They have to realize, I have sinned. They have to sit down, they have to say, yes, and they have to humble themselves. And they have to write, forgiven. They have to accept that forgiveness. Sit down quickly. The call of the gospel is an urgent call, and at any moment one's life could end, and we must not be reluctant to share our faith with those that are perishing. Verse 7, then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The debt of the second creditor is described as a hundred measures of wheat. While the oil may represent the spiritual consequences of sin, the wheat may represent the natural consequences and losses that result from sin. Perhaps people have stolen from us or cheated us. We must learn to forgive them and not seek vengeance. If we do not forgive them and release them, not only are we hindering God's dealing with them, we are handing ourselves over to the tormentor until we do forgive them. By reducing the debt, we lift some of the burden of their sins off of them so they can receive the gospel message. And we do this by, first, Forgiving them so that they do not feel shame around us and we can draw closer to them. If you don't forgive someone, you'll never be able to share the gospel because every time they see you, they're going to feel ashamed of what they've done. Second, we become an example of how God is a God of forgiveness. When they see how we forgive, they go, you mean God's a forgiving God? And third, we lighten their burdens in life so they can experience even a slight measure of what it feels to be forgiven. When someone has wronged you and you forgive them and they accept that, they can feel a little bit of what it means to feel forgiven. But he says, I want to, but then they say, I want to go to God and get that full forgiveness, that all these burdens. How many times have you prayed for people to receive Christ and afterwards, what do they say? I just feel like a huge weight has been taken off me, right? How many times have you, people have said that? Verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. We notice that the unjust steward acted shrewdly and was very deliberate in his actions and did not 
did not just carelessly throw around his master's goods. The people of this world know how to use the unrighteous mammon for their own benefit to influence people for their own selfish gain. The unjust steward wasted his master's good for his own selfish benefit, while we are to scatter our master's goods for the sake of the gospel to see others come to Christ. Some Christians can be covetous and fail to use God's goods to extend his kingdom and purposes because they hold on to them too tightly. Other Christians can be naive and end up either causing people to be codependent or even enable them to continue in destructive habits and choices. Codependency and enablement occurs when we're trying to shield people from the consequences of their choices. This is like trying to reduce their debt to zero without God's redemptive process. We can't reduce it and we shouldn't try to reduce their debt to zero. If someone is going to keep smashing their head against the wall, I'm not going to put my hand between their head and that wall. But when they do stop, I'll hand them a band-aid. Right? We can't stop people, and we are not to try to stop them from experiencing the consequence of the choices, but we're there to come alongside of them, to lead them to the one who can free them and forgive them and redeem them. We are not, try, we are not to try to be their savior, but to lead them to the savior. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the, righteousness, of, of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who wins souls is wise, the wise steward. The world knows when and how to be generous to win people over to themselves. However, we as believers are to be wise with the unrighteous mammon God has, given, has put into our stewardship. For he who wins souls is wise. In other words, some Christians are naive and they just... Help everybody without praying, God, how do I help this person? How much? How should I? How should I? Because sometimes I have done things where I've helped people and I realize I've enabled them to continue walking in a destructive way. I know you probably, a few other people say, yeah, I know that too. Verse 9 and 10. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by the unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. We must learn to be faithful in the little that we have now and not wait until we have more. You know, people, you know how people are? People say, well, you know, when I, when I kind of get established my career, then I'm going to start to seek God. When I have more time. If you can't find time now, you'll never find time. Oh, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to support ministry, ministries or whatever later when I have more money. If you don't learn to give a little bit now, you'll never give. If we do not learn to be faithful in the little things, we'll never be faithful in the great things. God tests our heart to see if our love is directed to him or to riches. Verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true, the true riches? If we're not faithful in the temporal riches of this life, we will fail to receive the true riches and the eternal rewards that God desires to give us. He has true riches that are going to be eternal. But if we're not faithful in the temporal riches, he will not be able to entrust us with the true riches. If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? If we're not faithful in the things that God has loaned us for this short time in this life, we will fail to receive our inheritance that Christ has intended for us. What is another man's? That's God's. Everything we have now is God's. 
But if we're faithful when we get to heaven, he will give us our inheritance. It'll be ours. But if we're not faithful in what he's given us now, we're not going to get what belongs to us in eternity. No man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve God and mammon. One we will love and cherish, and the other we will hate. We will either profane God or pray for a man, mammon. Do you know how many Christians profane God because they seek after wealth? And people say, is that how a Christian lives? If that's how Christians are, I don't want anything to do with them. That's what people will say. Because they're loving riches instead of loving God. In verse 14, the last verse. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. The response of the Pharisees is very telling. Because it revealed the true condition of their hearts. With their words they said they loved God. But their actions showed they loved money. The parable ends with a contrast between the unjust steward and those who are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. The unjust steward was motivated by covetousness and selfishness and was only concerned about others to the extent it would benefit himself. The unjust steward feigned generosity for his own self-serving purposes. Believers are to show their master's true generosity through their acts of generosity and mercy in order to promote God's character and increase his kingdom. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is to have a heart of self-sacrifice so Christ will be glorified and many would come and find salvation through faith in Christ. And that is the parable of the unjust steward and how we can learn how to be effective in evangelism. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness, Father. And Lord, I pray for each brother and sister here. I pray for myself, Lord, that we would come to a place of greater surrender, Lord. I thank you for the things you've done in our hearts, the areas where we've had surrender, areas where we've grown in you, Lord. But there's still areas that we need to surrender, areas we need to grow in, areas we're maybe even not aware of, Lord. But I thank you, Father, that your part is to bring us fruitfulness. Our part is to repent, to turn to you with submission and obedience. So we do our part now. We just want to submit and obey. And we look to you to do your part, to bring fruitfulness in our lives for your glory, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.